And this is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy with you this hour. Thanks for tuning in. They caused a big political fight at the Minnesota Capitol this year, and they're the centerpiece of President Joe Biden's strategy to fight climate change. They're electric cars. They're becoming less of a novelty and more of a viable transportation option for many people. What about you? I'd like to hear from you this hour if you drive an electric car or are seriously considering one. We're going to talk about the advantages, the disadvantages, the potential, and the problems associated with electric cars and the way we get around. Joining me is Rolf Nordstrom. He's the president and CEO of the Great Plains Institute. And Lisa Thurston is here. She's coordinator for the Minnesota Clean Cities Coalition, which is based out of the American Lung Association of Minnesota. Again, do you drive an electric car? Why? What do you like about it and what don't you like? Or tell us why you would never consider driving an electric car. Just give us a call. The number is 651-227-6000. 651-227-6000. Rolf Nordstrom, uh, Lisa Thurston, thanks for being here. I mentioned that electric cars are the centerpiece of the president's climate change strategy. Why is that, Rolf Nordstrom? What, uh, what do electric cars do for the climate that's so much better than gas-burning cars? Well, first, uh, Mike, thanks so much for having me. Really a pleasure. And, and Lisa, nice to be with you this morning. Uh, I mean, I think the reason, and it's not just President Biden. I think if you look at, at what automakers are saying they're going to do, and if you look around the world, it, it's really just the direction the market is taking is going all electric. I mean, we, we probably don't even have time to go through all the automakers and all the models that are coming in the next, you know, three to five years. Uh, I think from a climate standpoint, though, it's, it's pretty clear. I mean, uh, transportation is the largest source of greenhouse gas emissions. That's true nationally, and it's certainly true in Minnesota. Uh, so, uh, in fact, uh, transportation has been the highest emitting uh, sector for emissions in Minnesota since 2016 and, and now has grown to a quarter of the state's emissions as of 2018, which was the last uh, last data that we have. Hmm. Um, and, of course, Minnesota, back in 2007, as, as a lot of your listeners will know, actually passed a bipartisan piece of legislation that was landmark at the time called the Next Generation Energy Act mm-hmm. that set some, some greenhouse gas reduction goals, and we are, we're not meeting them. And in order to meet them, we're, we are basically going to have to wring the emissions out of transportation. And as we wring the emissions out of the way we produce electricity, if you then electrify transportation, that's a great twofer. You can get the emissions out of the electric sector, the power sector, and transportation at the same time. Mm-hmm. And uh, Lisa Thurston, so it depends on how the electricity is being generated that charges the batteries in these cars. Uh, what does that mix look like now in Minnesota? Where does our power come from? Well, thank you again for inviting me to be here this morning. Um, as you know, and Ralph mentioned that our electric vehicles are three times more efficient and the mixture in Minnesota is um, is getting cleaner every day. The utilities, um, nearly all of them have great programs that you can look at and um, sign up for renewal, renewable energy or wind source, wind, wind energy to power these vehicles. And just to go on a point that Ralph had mentioned, mm-hmm. um, we know that um, in, in the United States, more than 40% of Americans, over 135 million people, um, are affected by the unhealthy air caused by this pollution, too. Mm-hmm. And so 
what a, an electric car does, it, it takes away those tailpipe emissions. And so if you, if there were a bigger percentage of electric cars, the air around highways presumably would be cleaner. That's correct. Yeah, we, um, with the widespread um, transition to zero emission transportation technologies or electric vehicles, we know that the emission reductions by 2050 alone could add up to about 72 billion in avoided health harms annually. It could save approximately 63 um, hundred lives each year. And then it would also avoid more than 93,000 asthma attacks and over 416,000 lost days worked annually. And Rolf Nordstrom, uh, so then is, is the uh, electric generation sector getting clean enough to make these cars cleaner than, uh, than gas burning vehicles? In other words, are the is it possible to reduce the emissions from burning coal and natural gas and and other things that we use to generate power uh, to really make a dent in those greenhouse gas emissions? Yeah, for sure. In fact, it's it's uh, it's true today that if you uh, at least on uh, in in the grid mix that people would have in Minnesota, uh, at least in most utilities t- territories. Uh, if you bought an electric vehicle today, it would already produce many, many fewer greenhouse gas emissions than uh, an internal combustion engine equivalent. Uh, I mean, Minnesota, about, just to your earlier question, mm. uh, as of 2020, uh, about 30% of our electricity was made from renewable energy, which, of course, has produces no emissions, uh, around 26% from nuclear power still, which has some complications to it, but also produces no air emissions. Mm. We're down to about 25% coal in Minnesota and, and the remaining 20% natural gas. So even on the sort of average current grid mix, you're, you're way ahead from an emissions and kind of health uh, air quality standpoint, the kinds of things Lisa was just ticking off. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're, you're way ahead by buying an electric vehicle even today. And, of course, the way I describe the, the electric grid is that it's, it's good and getting better. I mean, it's, you know, Think of it as clean, clean now and getting cleaner progressively. So um, it's certainly not going to go backwards. And, of course, XL and, and Minnesota Power and Ottertail and, and lots of the other munis and co-ops have made bold announcements about uh, wringing the emissions out of electricity that they produce. So uh, we're on the path with the electric sector, and that's part of the reason why everybody is, is pretty excited about electric vehicles. And I would just add, since I, I bought an electric vehicle myself, used, my wife and I did a couple of years ago, um, for those fortunate enough to, to have a second car, um, there's really no reason it couldn't be electric. I mean, I, we bought an old 2010 Ford Focus all-electric. It's the, it's the most fun. I'm not a big car person, honestly, but it's mm. the most fun car I've ever driven. Super peppy. Uh, and, you know, I, I like the fact that I'm basically driving around on the wind, because we are signed up for Excel Energy's wind source program. Hmm. Well, uh, let me ask you, if everybody were to switch to an electric car like you did, somehow magically, you know, over the next couple of years, uh, yeah. could we generate enough electricity to keep them going? And can the electrical grid handle all that electricity, you know, moving it all around to get to people's garages or wherever they're plugging in? Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a great question. It's a natural question. Uh, the short answer is yes and yes. <laughs> I mean, if, if you you 
wouldn't want that transition for lots of reasons to happen, you know, by next week. Overnight, right. That, right. But, um, but, you know, as with any technology, whether it's a new iPhone or an electric vehicle, the, the capital turnover, the, just the stock of cars that are already out there and the ones people are purchasing today, it's going to take a while to turn over that entire uh, U.S. fleet. But, um, and as that happens, we will be building charging infrastructure and building out the electric grid to handle that. That's, that's already in almost every utility's plans. Uh, and, and we have a lot of headroom. I mean, uh, to your question about sort of waving a wand, even if, we, even if we, people switch to EVs faster than, than some might imagine, we have a lot of headroom in the existing system before we would need to worry about, gee whiz, do we have enough uh, generating capacity That's Rolf Nordstrom. He's president and CEO of the Great Plains Institute, also talking to Lisa Thurston. She's the coordinator for the Minnesota Clean Cities Coalition, which is part of the American Lung Association of Minnesota, talking today about uh, electric vehicles, clean cars, Um, whether you would drive one, whether you drive one now. We're taking your calls as well. The number is 651-227-6000, 651-227-6000. And let's take a call. Philip is on the line in Plymouth. Hi. Hi, Philip. Um, yeah, uh, I love talk. I love um, love electric cars. I've had electric cars for eight years. I've driven them one hundred and forty thousand miles, and I love talking to people at the state fair about electric vehicles or the Stone Arch Festival venues like that. Um, the main reason I drive an electric car is that I believe in separation of oil and state. Um, you think about it, a refinery is a terrible concentration of, of power as well as political power, and electric vehicles would diffuse that over um, and uh, spread literally spread democracy. But um, when, I, when I'm talking to people at the uh, fair, they usually ask me um, questions like, how much does it cost? Mm-hmm. And I'll say, well, uh, I, I turn it back on them. How far can they go on $3 of gasoline? Uh, I go 80 miles on uh, $3 of electricity. If I had off-peak, I'd go 150 miles uh, uh, with off-peak electricity. And then I point out that it's gas car owners who would benefit the most from rapid adoption of EVs. I mean, imagine if 10 or 20% of electric uh, cars were electric vehicles. What would happen to the demand for gasoline? It would plummet. Um and uh, and and all gas car owners would would uh, have reduced uh, energy costs. Um, and they they ask me about charging, and I'll say, well, how long does it take to put gas in your car? And someone will say, well, I put gas in my car every five days. And so I say, well, it takes you 15 minutes to get from the freeway, fill it up, and get back on the freeway. That's 18 hours a year that you're at the gas station. I'm 15 seconds. I drive in the garage. I plug it in, and I walk in the house, and I do that for 50 weeks a year. The only time I'm a little, uh, I have to plan a little bit is when I go on long trips, and I recently went to Albuquerque, to Estes Park, and back. No issues uh, charging my car and getting, and getting around. Hmm. Um, so you're, you're convinced. You're a convert. You'll, you'll never go back. I will. I will never. I mean, I, I've had zero maintenance. <laughs> uh, my my costs are so much less. Yeah, it's it's uh, and they're quiet. Great ex- sports car type acceleration. No catalytic converter. You know, I I will never go back to a gas car. All right, Philip. Thanks for the call. You're uh, 
Lisa Thurston, is that uh, is Philip typical of electric car owners? He sure is. He's um, one of many. We have a group called Minnesota EV Owners Group with over 200 people in this group talking about their experiences. And this this group includes myself. I have a Kia Nero plug-in hybrid electric that gets 26 electric miles and switches over to 46 gas. And everyone we see and talk to, they start off with potentially two cars in their household, and then they, um, with one electric and one gas. Uh, I am a one-car household, so I have, that's why I have the plug-in electric, because I travel um, short distance for my work commute, as well as my husband, and then whoever doesn't have the car takes the bus. And then when we travel up to the Boundary Waters or to my family in Wisconsin, we have the great mileage of um of the electric and or of the gasoline. And then when we get to my dad's house, we just plug into his garage with our cord into his 110 outlet and we drive on electric all weekend while we're visiting hmm. in a small town. I wanted to ask about plug-in hybrids because uh, the one uh, that comes to mind is the Chevy Volt, V-O-L-T. Uh, a lot of people seem to like it, um, but they stopped making it. They said uh, they didn't sell enough. Um, are plug-in hybrids still an option, or or is the market going directly to the all-electric? No, I believe plug-in hybrid electrics are a great option, uh, especially for people that are in rural communities or like myself with a one-car household. Um, my director also has a plug-in hybrid electric, so um, it's great for the round town commute, daily commute, and then you have the ease of mind for the long mile trips if you don't want to rent a vehicle for for those, such as um, other EV owners that have pure electrics with the smaller ranges. But the vehicles are changing so fast. They started out with 12 to 26 electric miles on PHEVs, um, and now they are going up to 50, 55, and they're going to be getting better. And the pure electrics are um, expanding just as fast with uh, 100 to 500 electric miles. And there's a lot of used vehicles on the market, both pure electric and plug-in hybrid electric. Well, let's hear from another caller. Catherine is on on the line from St. Louis Park. Hi, Catherine. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, my, I'd love to get a, an electric car. Um, my concern is the battery. I know my gasoline car has a battery and it will eventually die um, and have to be disposed of. But what are we as a society getting into with um, different kind of batteries? How are they made? Who are we, who are we relying on to, to get more batteries? And when we're done with the batteries, um, how are they recycled, and how is that different than a current battery in a car? Great question. Rolf Nordstrom, uh, do you want to take that one? Well, I, I can try. I, I, to be honest, uh, and it is a great question, wh- I don't go deep on the, the sort of mechanics of um, either the mining end for the, the elements that go into the battery or the end-of-life process, but I, I do know this much, uh, and it's a question, a lot of Catherine's question is one that a lot of people have, and i I'm actually heartened by the fact that the question gets asked because it means that we're we're beginning to think ahead about what happens to something, not just batteries, at the end of its useful life. And I, we haven't been great at that necessarily. <laughs> so I think it's a great question. Uh, so um, here, here's what I do know about that subject. Um, 
the, it's true that the lithium-ion batteries that are typically used today in electric vehicles do require uh, elements that, that have to be mined. I mean, that's just, that's just the truth of it. Um, and uh, it's going to be important to do that mining in a thoughtful, responsible way. And then at the back end, there are, I mean, I, all of the automakers are, are, know that this is going to be an issue, and so they are already working on kind of the end-of-life process for batteries. Thankfully, the, the batteries actually turn out to last quite a long time, and in fact, it's very often the case that when, when it's no longer doing quite what you need it to do in your vehicle, uh, it can actually be repurposed sometimes by utilities for, for use uh, as as batteries in in uh, in power systems. So, uh, I don't know. Lisa may have more to add to that one. Yeah, just a little bit more. Uh, we know a lot of laboratories are looking at this and evaluating the process. Argonne National Laboratory is a great uh, laboratory that has um, some processes down and information. If you go to their website, you can find it. Um, with the batteries in the vehicles, they're warranted 50, 80, 100,000 miles. And the dealerships and the vehicle manufacturers want to take care of the customers. We've heard a few cases here and there over the last eight years where something did go wonky and the dealership took care of the customer for the most part. And then finally, with the with the batteries being recycled, um, we know that they are um, not just one time recycled and resourced, but up to three times. So they break it down when it gets down to about 70%. They break it down and pull it apart and use it in factories and, and so forth. And then after they get down to 50 to 25%, they get down, they get broken down even more and used in different applications. So hmm. when you're Looking at, you know, I don't want to just talk about electric vehicles. I'd like to bring in real quick um, electric lawn equipment. And even when you look at the batteries on these, it, it has instructions how to recycle your battery properly. You know, I have an electric lawnmower, but it, it has an extension cord. Same do I. A long one. <laughs> uh, let me ask you, though, about uh, as long as we're talking about batteries, uh, stories in the news recently about the Chevrolet Bolt, the B-O-L-T, the all-electric car. And some of the batteries uh, caught fire or had caught fire when the car was recharging. Uh, General Motors doing a big recall said to cost in the range of a billion dollars. How bad does an incident like that hurt the push for electric cars? Uh, and I don't know, Lisa, if, if you could address that one or not. Sure, I can touch on it here. Um it is an issue, but we like to remind people that there are as many issues with gasoline vehicles as well. So um, the GM does, this is a, a severe issue with the vehicle at the moment, and it is only certain years. And they have taken the steps to um, have an interim plan what to do in the meantime until the, the application is properly addressed. And they're looking for um, different ways to work around this. This is, again, as you've said, a new technology, and it's similar with other vehicles. This is not a unique story with gasoline-powered vehicles and stories we've heard in the past. Mm -hmm. Okay, lots of interest from the callers, so let's go back to the phones. Dean is on the line in Rochester. Hi, Dean. Go ahead. You're on. Hi. I appreciate the program. Uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, the climate report came out, and, and my wife and I felt really compelled to do something uh, to make a difference, and, and electric vehicles is one of those things. 
No, we're having a tough time uh, making the decision to go forward, though. One is uh, my wife drives a, a big SUV and, you know, it hauls the kids and stuff around. And there really aren't affordable EVs out there and, uh, uh, with three rows and the like. And I drive a Civic, but I'm interested in switching that in. Uh, and I, I think a plug-in hybrid would work well. But our family plan is to keep cars for about 10 years. And I'm concerned about the battery life. Uh, you know, if I buy a used one, which is comparable in price to internal combustion, like a, uh, looking at the Honda Clarities, um, the, the price is fine. But if the battery is only warranted to 100000 and it already has 30000 on, um, am I going to get that lifespan that I want, or even with a new vehicle? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really my question is, you know, how... How do these cars work for people who plan to keep their cars for a long time? Great question. Uh, Rolf Nordstrom, how many miles do you have on your, uh, f- was it a Ford Focus? It is, yeah. Uh, well, I'm not a very good test case because the person who owned it before me didn't drive it very far. So it's probably got, you know, maybe 50,000 miles on it. And my commute is, you know, most Americans commute less than 40 miles a day. Uh, and mine is, is decidedly shorter than that. So I don't have a lot of miles, but I... I think to the caller's question, I mean, Dean raises some important points, and I would say a couple things. Um, one, I think in terms of, and Lisa mentioned this, I think, or hinted at it, uh, the batteries turn out to last really quite a long time. And, in fact, I think the, the predictions are that, um, that electric vehicles are going to be much longer lived than a typical internal combustion engine vehicle, um, in, in large part because they have so many fewer moving parts. Um, and, and so, I mean, you certainly want to, what I would recommend is there's an excellent tool called the EV Sales Savvy, S-A-V-V-Y, that's it's offered by um, a group called shift2electric.com. It's shift, the number two, electric.com, that has some excellent tools there to help you do just the kind of evaluation that it sounds like Dean and his wife have been doing. You know, what are our driving habits? What are our needs? what kind of vehicle might suit us. And then I, this might be a little unsatisfying because it's not, it's not immediate, but th- the truth is that there's something like, I don't know, 35 uh, new models coming starting next year. You know, Ford has just announced the all-electric Ford F-150. Uh, a, a, a GM is offering a, an all-electric Silverado. Uh, there's a new startup called Rivian that's offering an electric truck and a whole bunch of of kind of crossover and SUV vehicles. Uh, I don't have the websites off the top of my head, but mm. uh, those are, it'd be easy to, to search for, to Google, uh, or I could provide that later uh, if, if Dean's interested. Okay. Um, so, you know, in other words, if, if you even just held off a year for your car purchase, I think you'd have, you'd begin to have many more vehicles to choose from. And, um, and that's, that's also changing in Minnesota because of this, new so-called clean cars rule uh, that's been adopted in Minnesota, which the main effect of which is going to be to increase the number of EVs that are available to Minnesota consumers to purchase. I mean, at the moment, according to the PCA, something like less than half of the 40 EV types that are produced are are available to Minnesota consumers. So that should be changing. You know, not tomorrow, because that rule doesn't actually take effect until 2024, but I would think you know, even in the next 18 months or so, uh, Minnesotans will begin to see more EV options uh, at their dealerships. 
This is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. We're talking this hour about electric cars in Minnesota. What would it take to get you to drive one? Maybe you drive one already. But they, they seem to be the future, but we'll see. Now, joining me now is Scott Lambert. He's the president of the Minnesota Automo- Auto- Automobile Dealers Association. His group opposed Governor Tim Walz's push for what are known as clean car standards in Minnesota. Scott Lambert, Minnesota Automobile Dealers Association, thanks for being here. Good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Uh, why did the car dealers have a problem with uh, Governor Walls and his administration making a push to require more electric cars? Uh, well, two things. Uh, first of all, we're taking uh, all of our orders from California. These are not Minnesota standards. They're California standards. Uh, California is dictating uh, all of all of the rules. Uh, Minnesota is abdicating its authority to California, and uh, we don't want to be governed by California bureaucrats. Mm-hmm. And the second problem is it it goes after, in our view, the wrong end of the problem. It goes after supply, uh, and we think that a better way to do this would be to uh, to be going after demand. We think the government, uh, the state, should be working on incentives. Uh, to increase demand and working on infrastructure, but instead they chose the California method, which is going to swamp us with more supply than we can possibly uh, handle, uh, given the demand in the state right now for these vehicles. Mm-hmm. Now, that being said, l- let me say, we're, we're, dealers are all in for electric vehicles. We understand this is the future. We don't have our head in the sand on this. Uh, we think we're an essential part of the electric vehicle future, and we want to be part of that. And, and when customers want to buy these vehicles, we want to be in a position to sell them. And so we're not anti-electric vehicle, but we, we do think that the state has chosen the wrong path in how to get there. Aren't the uh, car manufacturers going this way, though? I mean, you got Ford coming out with the electric F-150. You've got uh, Chevy saying they're going to make most of their cars electric. Uh I mean, isn't it going to happen anyway? Well, well, it 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 likely is, which which I think uh, bolsters my argument that we don't need to be governed by California bureaucrats who are making rules. Uh, we should let the market play this out, and uh, and we should let uh, the forces of supply and demand uh, work out in a free market the way they normally would, without without messing with uh, with oversupply of vehicles. Uh, you, there are a lot of vehicles. I think got a quibble with what was said earlier uh, more it's not more than it's not just half the vehicles available of the 42 bunch of vehicles on the market right now minnesota's minnesotans can easily get to 35 of those vehicles mm. on dealer lots right now uh, we, we've uh, we've never agreed with the number the mpca has uh, touted on that so we think that there are vehicles available we know that the manufacturers are are uh, are uh, all in on this, as are the dealers. Uh, they're producing a lot, of, a lot new product. There'll be a lot new product coming down the pipe, and you know we've all yet to see uh, if if uh, consumers will will take these, uh, embrace these on a, on a mass scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, it's a lot of early adopters. We're at about two and a half percent of pure electric vehicles being sold right now. For, actually, a lot more hybrids are being sold. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, uh, which is uh, which is interesting. Uh, people are still want the kind of the safety of a gas engine along with their plug-in electric, uh, which which I understand. Uh, we're still waiting for some technological breakthroughs. I think would help a lot uh, mm-hmm. with the demand side of this equation. But but Minnesota's got to get going on infrastructure. Uh, our infrastructure is is minimally viable 
right now for the amount of vehicles we have, and we need to do more on that. And nothing's really been done on that yet in Minnesota. And by infrastructure, you mean charging stations? Charging stations, right. Right. There's no, it is, it is very, uh, we, we, are, we are not capable yet of, uh, if you think of places where people go uh, normally, uh, shopping centers, uh, grocery stores, things like that, you know, it's, there's not enough uh, charging stations to satisfy the kind of demand uh, that people say they want. Um, plus, uh, you know, Minnesotans, it gets cold here in the winter, and we got to find a place to plug these cars in at night. And if you drive up and down a lot of Minneapolis-St. Paul streets, those people are parking on the street, and we gotta we got to figure this out. There's still a lot of issues that have to be figured out in terms of infrastructure. Mm-hmm. But but the product is being built, and 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 your your guests are correct. There's going to be hundreds of new products available in the dozens and dozens in the, in the next few years. Uh, your guest who is concerned about your call-in who is concerned mm-hmm. about trucks, mm-hmm. that's coming. Uh, that's coming very soon. Uh, uh, the F-150 uh, is, is coming up. Now, it doesn't quite have the range that we would like. Once we get a truck that has a range of over 400 miles, you know, that's going to be the technolo- technological breakthrough that's really going to, I think, send these into uh, in the mass appeal. Uh, we're not quite there yet, but we're, we're getting there. Uh, with President uh, Biden pushing so hard for electric cars, and you know, there's a lot of a lot for infrastructure and charging in the in that big infrastructure bill. Uh, he's also pushing for higher fuel efficiency standards. Does that make the Minnesota clean car standards a little less of a controversy? Is Minnesota less of an outlier if if everybody in the country has to do this? Well, we're still waiting on the details for the emission standards. Uh, but we've always said we don't really care what the emission standards are as long as the nation has one emission standard. And right now, uh, we're, we're, at, we're on a path for two emission standards, the, the, the federal standards and the California standards. And Minnesota will be bound to the California standards. Uh, and and I, I, we're hoping that the, the Biden administration is going to um, uh, sync up with the California standards. So there's only one standard. And in that case, that's that's not a big deal, but but if they don't, it is a it is a very big concern that Minnesota would have a different emission standard because then we're selling different vehicles hmm. in Minnesota than our neighboring states. And and also remember, California is is uh, going to ban the sale of gas powered vehicles in 2035, and that's uh, that's not that far away in terms of manufacturing terms. Uh, a ban on gas powered vehicles is a very serious thing if uh, for a state that's reliant on biofuels. And uh, and and uses trucks uh, to uh, to go to work. This is you know the, this is the workhorse of Minnesota. Eighty-seven uh, percent of the vehicles Minnesotans buy are trucks. And right now, there's there's not an electric truck on the market. Now they're coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, will they be affordable? Will they be able to travel far on a, uh, on a, on a cold February day? Uh, these are big big issues. We still have to sort out. And I, I think the uh, aligning with the California standards was was not. Uh, a wise move for a northern tier state uh, that gets cold in the winter and uh, and does not have air quality problems that California has. We we don't need to do this for emissions issues. Well, you know, a lot of days this summer have been pretty smoky. We got a big drought going on. We've got uh, well, know, a lot of people Mike, saying we got to make because, some changes on the climate, don't we? Uh, well, they've been smoky because of of, of extraordinary fire issues in in, in Canada. But Minnesota is in uh, non-attainment 
uh, does have has zero non-attainment areas in terms of air quality. Uh, we we don't have uh, by by um, by contrast, California has uh, over I think it's over 150 uh, non-attainment areas uh, uh, where their their air quality is not up to central standards, and uh, Minnesota has zero. So so it's not fair to compare us to the kind of air quality Minnesota has, or well, uh, excuse I, me, California has. Yeah, and I, I don't want my my the point I was trying to make to get missed. Um, you know, a quarter of the greenhouse gases are coming out of the tailpipes of cars. Doesn't something have to change here? Well, and, and again, we're again electric cars are the future, and and we're not we're not denying that. What we what we are saying is that the California standards were not a good fit for Minnesota. That the, that the, the market was headed there, and we should let we should let the free market play this out. Uh, we can't make people buy these vehicles. You can't force them to buy it. What this standard does is force the dealers to stock them. So, so we're selling about 2,500 uh, of these vehicles right now a year. That's that's the demand in this state. Uh, the, under this, under these rules, uh, we're going to be forced to purchase from the manufacturers over 18,800 of these vehicles. That's the MPCA's number hmm. under under these new rules. That's that's more than we can possibly sell. Hmm. So, so it it doesn't make a lot of sense to do this unless the government's going to help uh, incentivize demand. So, and states that have incentivized demand have done very well uh, in, in, in moving the needle on getting more people to buy electric vehicles. Mm-hmm. But increasing supply doesn't do it. Mm-hmm. So what do you do from here? Do you, do you and your dealers keep opposing these standards, or do you try to make them work? Uh, we are opposed to the standards. We have been for two years. Uh, we've never been able to talk to the governor about it, uh, and we will continue to oppose the standards. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, we are working with our dealers to get them ready to sell electric cars. Uh, dealers have to do a lot of uh, their own infrastructure uh, in their service shops uh, and in their in, in their uh, in their lots to get ready to sell electric vehicles. And we're uh, we're working on that uh, every day to try and get the dealers uh, uh, up to speed and ready. Okay. Well, thanks a lot for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. That's Scott Lambert. He's the president of the Minnesota Automobile Dealers Association. And we're going to continue for the rest of the hour with Rolf Nordstrom, the president and CEO of the Great Plains Institute, and Lisa Thurston, coordinator for the Minnesota Clean Cities Coalition, which works out of the American Lung Association of Minnesota. And uh, Rolf and Lisa, I have to tell you, we have a lot of people standing by on the phones, so I am going to take some calls from listeners, if that's okay with you. Let's hear from Brian in Appleton. Hi, Brian. Hello, Mike. Um, I'm glad to hear the the fellow you just talked to said that uh, there is going to be an increase in supply of the electric vehicles out here in western Minnesota. I tried to buy an electric vehicle. I looked in Fergus Falls, Alexandria, Wilmer, Marshall, nothing. I finally bought a Tesla S in Eden Prairie, the closest dealership, last year in March. I live three hours west of the Twin Cities. I can drive that car back and forth, round trip, 340 miles without a charge. Hmm. And I charge it in my garage. Otter Till gave a $500 grant to help the charging station. So I love it. And there's a postal worker out here nearby in Big Stone County, right on the South Dakota border, who has driven a used Tesla on his mail route for years successfully. So these work already in western and deep rural Minnesota, but... 
the charging stations we need, at least in the regional towns, mm-hmm. and we really need more of these in the dealerships Okay, so we can have accessibility. Brian, thanks for the call. Uh, Rolf Nordstrom, uh, what about, uh, you know, we heard from both Brian and from Scott Lambert, need more charging stations. Is that coming? It is coming, and I, actually I think I, uh, I know uh, Scott um, and his his members have, have real concerns about the clean cars rule, but that his point about uh, needing incentives, working on the, the the demand side with incentives and building out the infrastructure is absolutely essential. I mean, it's, uh, you know, one of the three biggest barriers to EV adoption is is what's known as range anxiety, people feeling like they won't have a place to recharge if they leave home, never mind the fact that really 80 to 95% of charging takes place at your house anyway. Uh, so to something Philip said, which really struck me, I wrote it down, I mean, uh, uh, this idea that you, these weren't quite his words, but you can basically be your own oil company. <laughs> In effect, you can be your own gas station. And, and most people will be most of the time because that's where you're going to, just like you plug in your cell phone at night, you're going to plug in your, your electric vehicle. But there does need to be a much more robust uh, charging infrastructure, and that is coming. I mean, it's already, you know, there was this VW settlement money from the VW scandal. Uh, the state is spending that on building out more uh, public charging stations along key corridors. We, the Great Plains Institute, are actually working with MnDOT, the Department of Transportation, to develop, to do kind of an EV assessment uh, to just see uh, in a much more data-driven way where we need to put infrastructure. Uh, And, of course, and you mentioned in your conversation with Scott, the the Biden administration, you know, the bipartisan infrastructure bill that just passed, uh, the Biden administration estimates are something like $68 coming to Minnesota for, for charging infrastructure. That can go a long way toward building out the kind of charging network that will give people comfort, even if most of the time, honestly, they won't need it, but it will give them sort of psychological comfort that they will be able to charge up uh, pretty much wherever they go. And, of course, corridors, charging corridors have also been developed along the interstates. That still needs to be beefed up further, and we are working with as many as 10 states kind of in the mid-continent to build out in a coordinated way that infrastructure. So, it's, it's definitely coming, but it's, I think people should not be afraid to, to wade in with an EV, even with the infrastructure that you have. It just requires a little bit more forethought. But all of the vehicles come, virtually all of them come with a built-in um, app that, that lets you know where your closest charging station is. So it's really made kind of idiot-proof. Um, and there are also phone apps like PlugShare that do the same thing. So I think part of it is just apprehension. You know, yeah. uh, AAA actually did a study, uh, or a survey rather, and, and found that, well, one, and this came up earlier in the conversation, in terms of how people feel about electric vehicles once they try one, uh, according to the AAA survey, 96% said they would buy or lease another one, and 77% of those who initially had concerns about not enough driving range or there not being enough charging stations, said they actually no longer had those concerns after they made their purchase. So I, hmm. I think part of it is um, people have this impression sometimes that electric vehicles are going to be like a glorified golf cart, you know, slow, not very fun to drive, not long range. Uh, the range does need to improve, and, and Scott's right about that, but that's happening, as Lisa said. So 
Um, uh, okay, Lisa, let me ask you a, a question that uh, that Scott Lambert raised, and it was also an issue that came up at FarmFest this year. Electric cars, it was said, will kill the market for ethanol and, to a lesser extent, for biodiesel. Doesn't that make it even harder to convince people in rural areas to to you know switch to an electric car if the range anxiety wasn't a, a, a factor enough to make them reluctant? No, I think um, all these fuels need to work together for as long as we can. I previously was a flex fuel vehicle owner, and the only reason why I switched to electric was because um, the flex fuel vehicles on the market were bigger than what I needed with a one car, no kids household. And, um, and so the mileage was lower than what I wanted. And the electric vehicle uh, SUV that I have is perfect for my needs. Um, there's, I, I do use E15 in it when I am putting gasoline in it. And um, as everyone has said on this call here, the, the trucks aren't here yet. So until we get to that place in, in the um, down the road where the vehicles are on the market, biodiesel and ethanol are viable op- options for our not only our air quality, but our um, energy security and the economics for the state. And one other thing I just wanted to go back about what Scott had mentioned with the infrastructure. Minnesota is doing amazing for having minimal incentives and having um, being a slight um, what we call a flyover state for the vehicles on the market. Uh, we have over um, 500 stations that where you can plug in an electric charging station. But keep in mind, 80% of your charging is done at home. And then for those people that live in work uh, multi-unit housing, there's the workplace charging programs in the state of Minnesota are just going through the roof. We have some great programs. Um, we have some good websites called workplacecharging.com if you want to talk to your employer about it. And another website, multihousingcharging.com, is an opportunity website where you can talk to your um, multi-unit, your site, um, housing site, to talk about getting charging at your uh, location. And then one other website, sorry, I'm um, <laughs> dropping all these here. Okay. Minnesotacharging.org is, shows all the utilities with the EV programs. So um, with the VW settlement coming, uh, we've more than doubled our charging stations. We have more than Wisconsin. We are behind with, um, with Illinois, mm. but that's because they are more um, Urban, the metro more area. Mm-hmm. Yep, yeah, and and more corridors are going through there too. So okay. uh, we're holding our own here in Minnesota. All right, let's go back to the phone lines. John is on the line from Northfield. Hi, John. Hi. Yes, uh, we've been driving a Chevy Volt, that's with a V, mm-hmm. uh, so it doesn't catch on fire. <laughs> and we've been very happy with it for five years and 140,000 miles now, so the battery's still going well on it, too. Um, and we've definitely enjoyed uh, you know, the options of having a hybrid. Um, the one question issue that we, we've had sometimes is uh, particularly driving into the metro area, um, where we do, we can drive an electric to get there. And we had a situation where actually my wife was literally working in downtown St. Paul and uh, there was a charging station right in front of her building. And uh, um, unfortunately we found that the pricing of that charging station sometimes was actually more than the cost of fuel for, for putting gasoline in the car. 
And uh, it was great to have it there. We still used it. But that's quite a disincentive, and, and I, it was inexplicable to me why that cost should be so high, other than we found that most of the charging stations in St. Paul and I think in the metro area are controlled by one or two companies. Hmm. And I wonder what local municipalities or jurisdictions can do to, to uh, kind of oversee that and make sure that we not only have enough charging stations, but they're truly affordable and, and create incentives for people to want to use the electricity and electric vehicles. Okay, uh, let's run that question by Rolf Nordstrom. Rolf, any idea what's going on there? Well, um, yeah, I mean it's it is uh, it's it's a pretty varied landscape up there out there when, in terms of charging stations. I mean, most public stations are privately held, which which John sort of hinted at there, um, and those are typically so-called level two chargers. You know, level one is basically plugging into any standard outlet. Level two is is somewhat faster, and then you have these. Uh, so-called DC fast charging stations that are the fastest yet, but most of the public ones are are level two chargers, um, and they typically cost a, a few dollars an hour to charge your your vehicle, um, and at that uh, rate, it would typically be be less expensive than filling your your gas tank, but um, but it does vary by by who owns the charger and what you know wh- how they set the system up, so. Mm. It isn't. It is not uniform. Uh, some public level two stations are actually free to use. Uh, often, often put out by cities or park districts or, or other amenity, uh, you know, amenities where they they want people to come and uh, and have longer dwell time, so to speak. Uh, why um, Why aren't the uh, chargers like a Tesla charger isn't compatible with a Chevy, right? Well, that's right. So, I mean, and that, I'm afraid for that one you have to have Tesla on the show. I think they, just for strategic um, kind of commercial reasons, they wanted to make their charging network proprietary so that you had only Tesla owners could use it. Uh, I think that's probably great for Tesla and Tesla owners, but maybe suboptimal for for the rest of society. Um, but I, but there's there is such a, as Lisa said, there's such a robust network growing that is is can be used by any EV that's not unique to Tesla. That I think that advantage that Tesla has had for a while in having a more robust charging network is really going to begin to diminish over time. And Lisa Thurston, what's the next step here? What, what are we going to see next in adopting or adapting to electric vehicles? Well, first, we're going to be seeing a lot more vehicles coming to the market, as uh, Ralph mentioned earlier. Uh, currently, we have about 38 vehicles that are on the market that you can find if you go to evinfolist.com. And then um, we're going to have a ton of more charging stations. We have a variety of programs, uh, the Michigan to Montana corridor project, where we're filling in the gaps along I-94. Um, and then there's the VW funding that's coming. We're in phase two of that. This year alone, they're adding 38 level or DC fast chargers, I believe, alone. And they're on their second wave of corridor charging um, infrastructure build out. Um, a lot of the workplace charging, again, I said mentioned and multi-unit housing is further developing. Um, the American Lung Association, I'm working on a project with uh, City of St. Paul in Minneapolis where there, we're going to be putting out um, um, 70 hubs of charging stations and 25 multi-unit housing within the next few months here. So okay. we're going to see numbers going up very rapidly. 
Well, uh, one number that is not going up rapidly is the amount of time we have left in the program. I'm afraid we've reached the end. Lisa Thurston from the Minnesota Clean Cities Coalition, thanks so much for being here. Rolf Nordstrom from the Great Plains Institute, great conversation. Thanks for coming by today. Appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having us. And I have to say thanks to all the callers, too. Uh, More than we could get to, unfortunately. Thanks for calling. Thanks for hanging on. Really good program. Appreciate it a lot. That'll do it for now. I'm Mike Mulcahy. You've been listening to a recording of a live radio show on NPR News. You can hear Mike Mulcahy, Ewan Kerr, Catherine Richard, and other guest hosts during a live call-in show at 9 a.m. weekdays throughout the month of August. Looking for Carrie Miller? She's back talking about books and ideas at 11 a.m. every Friday starting September 10th. Thanks for listening.